0: Welcome back to Crossing the Jordan, my friends and family. I pray that you had a blessed Holy Week. And as we enter into this uh, Holy Saturday and await the resurrection of Jesus, I pray that you fall more and more in love with him to see the radical love that God has for you as you go into this Easter season of joy and freedom and love and have that resurrection power that dwells in us so that we may love like Jesus loved today we continue our series on salvation. And yet again, this is an unexpected episode because I figured I'd be getting into, you know, like talking about grace and faith and, and all of those things. But I felt like the Lord placed on another part of my heart is uh, another part of what he has done for us to see the radical nature of God's love for us and what he came to do. So in the past few weeks, we talked about the gospel. We talked about what God was doing on a cross. And today I want to talk about really the basic christian message and the basic christian mission which is in summer summary right order and right relationships so let's go back into history one more time History, remember, it is his story, literally, God's story for his love for his people. And Jesus is Lord of history because God has entered into time and he has entered into his, an historical act and a, a historical event and continues to write history in our hearts. So this history, since the fall, God has been calling his people to restore creation that has fallen. The tabernacle and temple of the Old Covenant, the worship that happened in the Old Covenant, was created to symbolize a new and restored garden. Remember, the fall happened in a garden, and the temple and the the tabernacle were set up in a way to symbolize a brand new and uh, restored garden, that the universe was made new and right again through this worship in the temple and tabernacle. And this is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the new temple. He is the fulfilled temple. He is His body is the temple and we receive that in the Eucharist and His body is also the church and we are called to be temples of the Holy Spirit where we reconcile and Jesus reconciles. In Jesus, we are reconciled with God and with each other. Jesus fulfills and is the glory of Israel's promise as God's chosen people And as he is the Jewish Messiah. But he's also a light of revelation to the Gentiles, Simeon says in Luke 2. He's reconciling the entire human race to himself and calls all of us to be part of this new covenantal family of God. So right order, uh, Jesus comes to establish in the cosmos and creation to set, right, to recreate creation. To go back to the beginning. And now he didn't do this where he takes away suffering and takes away all of these things that are uh, plaguing the the human race, but he comes in to transform it so that he would give us grace that we'd become a new creation in this life to transform it until we have it fulfilled completely in the kingdom of heaven when there's a new heavens and a new earth. But even in here, we're to go back to the very beginning. Natural law, uh, speaks of this. It's how everything in the created order naturally works and reveals to us both from like a created um, uh, created environment around us but also the created human person. Natural law itself speaks of all this, uh, this right order but divine revelation in Jesus illuminates and heightens this and we're going to go into, la- into detail later on this. So how is everything created and recreated slash redeemed? Love. You're created by love. You're redeemed by love to be recreated in and by and through love. The fulfillment of everything is love. And we see that fulfilled in Jesus. Everything is put in right order and in right relationship. The basic Christian message, right relationships. And this is a pure gift from God. He didn't need any of this, nor did he need to do any of this. He's God. He needs nothing. He's sufficient on his own. He's happy on his own. Yet out of his goodness and out of his love, he has created us and redeemed us to share in his goodness and truth and love and beauty. So he reconciled God and man. He reconciled man and man. He reconciled creation. So in humanity, in Jesus, we are reconciled with each other, with God and all creation. And this happened because of love, it continues to happen because of love. And love isn't some flimsy cliche like the world loves to say. And uh, today we, uh, the, the culture promotes a lot of love is love. But the world me- what the world means by that is that it can define love by ourselves, which really just means that whatever makes us feel good and we don't hurt others ultimately. But it ultimately does hurt people the way that they mean it. The world's meaning of love is a compromising love. But Christian love means truth. And compassion together. Compassion means to suffer with. Jesus's passion means to suffer and he had compassion he suffers with. And so truth and compassion together is Christian love and these two can never be separated or it's not Christian love. Compassion without truth becomes a lie and leads to further hurt and brokenness in the human heart. And doesn't lead to our ultimate happiness when we uh, we fall out of line of what nature and what the divine revelation has revealed to us to be true. And when we fall outside of that, we are not working to our ultimate end, which is perfect happiness and love. And then truth without compassion can be very condemning. Hateful, false judgment, and like a self-righteousness type of thing. Like, well, here's the truth. I'm just leaving you without any, I'm not walking with you. No, Jesus revealed the truth and he is truth himself. And he also had compassion. He walked with us. He became all things for men, yet without sin. And anything contrary to this love that is truth and compassion is, is contrary to complete love. And God is love so love is God. So God and man, man and man, and creation are all reconciled, reordered, put back in its proper place in Jesus. Jesus says that he fulfills the law. He doesn't abolish the law. He fulfills the commandments. He He calls all of us to fulfill all righteousness and justice. In the Beatitudes, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, or in another way he could. Uh, Translate the righteousness word is to justice as well. We do seek justice. We do seek righteousness, And which this only comes through Jesus, the one who is the new Adam, who makes all things new. He is the new Adam, and not only does Jesus make all things new as the new Adam, He is even greater than the beginning. We even have greater because of the fall. We even have uh, this greater creation, and Jesus says that the greatest commandment is to love God and to love neighbor because in that love, all the commandments are fulfilled because love presumes, proceeds, is through, and is completed through love. So what does love look like? Love looks like Jesus, God the Son, God the Son, the truth, and him crucified. His motivation is love. His me- the means that he takes out is love, and the end is for love. Jesus is the truth, speaks only the truth, and is rich in compassion as he suffers with us. And this is the great Christian revelation that God is love, the Trinitarian God, where for all eternity, God is a family of persons pouring themselves out to each other. Father pouring himself out to the Son, and the Son pouring himself out to the Father. And the eternal Holy Spirit is that union of that love of self-gift. Colossians 115, St. Paul says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Why does he say that? Because he shows us in his humanity, what he's doing on the cross is what God has been doing for all eternity. When he says on the cross, the last words, one of the last seven words that he says on the cross is Abba, into your hands I commit my spirit. That's what he's been doing for all eternity. And Jesus sweeps all of us up, all of humanity in that unfathomable love of self-gift, calling us to participate in this love of God that is found in self-gift, that we, through Jesus, with Jesus, and in Jesus, pour ourselves out to the Father and for others, saying, Abba, into your hands I commit my spirit and active will of pouring self out fully. He is the image of the invisible God because he shows us what he's been doing from all eternity. His earth Jesus' earthly ministry had signs and wonders. And people wanted to see these signs, right? But he came to restore, redeem, heal, reconcile, forgive, save the lost. Not just to put on a show with these signs and miracles. When he proclaimed that the kingdom of God was at hand, the people thought of an earthly kingdom that would set the Jewish people free from political oppression from the Roman Empire and taxation. And he came to restore the kingdom in a different yet greater way to set us free from the oppression of the real enemies of sin, death, and the slavery to the devil. Right after Peter was proclaimed the first pope, Jesus began speaking to the disciples that he must suffer and be killed in Jerusalem. And Peter rebukes him and says, God forbid that that happens to you, Lord. But Jesus responds to him, Get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking as God does, but as men do, and you're a hindrance to me. Because he was thinking of men, like like man. Like he thought that I'm following the Messiah, and he's restoring the Davidic kingdom. But this is contrary to what he thought, and he's renewing his mind. Peter, again, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus is suffering and he's betrayed by Judas, and he comes with all the, uh, the high priest servants, and one of uh, the high priest servants, Malchus, Peter fights for Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, cuts off the high priest's servant's ear, still thinking that, no, this is not going to happen to my king, not to my Messiah that I'm following. He came to restore the Davidic kingdom. This is going to be an earthly kingdom. He's still thinking this way. And Jesus, still cleaning up Peter's mess, goes and restores uh, Malchus's ear. He heals it. And he says, put away your sword. Whoever lives by the sword shall die by it. And then Jesus, when he goes to the cross, he doesn't go to conquer the Roman Empire, and that's what the people were afraid of. That's what the Jewish people were afraid of. That's what the Roman people were afraid of. And that's why the the high priest tells Pontius Pilate, who was, um, who like governed that area for Caesar. Who believed to be the king? He says, "If if you don't crucify this man, then you are no friend of Caesar's, because they're still thinking that Jesus came to start like this massive revolution where, with like violence and and all of these things, right? And uh, so Jesus shows that he doesn't he didn't come to conquer the Roman Empire, but that that's what the fe- people fear, and ultimately gets him crucified. But he goes to begin the kingdom of heaven. At the cross, people are still seeking a sign." They're still saying, if you are the Son of God, take yourself down off that cross. But instead, he prays for forgiveness for all of them. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. His apostles asked him after uh, his resurrection in, in the first chapter of Acts, he, they asked him, Lord, are you now going to restore the, the Davidic kingdom? And he, and he does. But the origin is heavenly to transform the world, not in violence, but in peace not in hatred but out of love and in all of this we see that jesus's mission was the cross the whole purpose of his life was to die he came in a manger he came in that wooden manger that signified the cross he became in bethlehem and in a feeding trough to show that in the eucharist uh it he came to die saint paul even says after the eucharist in first corinthians 11 he says When we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the death of the Lord. We proclaim as Christians Christ crucified, that death is gain. Because when we die to ourselves in this life, we bear abundant fruit and we find true life. And in fulfillment of that, we don't go seeking our death. But when death comes, we know that death is gain, that when we die, we are transformed. uh, And that uh, through that death that Jesus has transformed, we become fully alive in the beatific vision of God. So anything contrary to Jesus' mission of the cross, his life, his purpose of his life was to die, anything contrary to, to that, to him, is contrary to him. So, and Jesus says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. What Jesus is saying is that there's no sacrifice for just the sake of sacrifice, but it's a living sacrifice for the sake of love, where like Jesus, our motivation, our means, our end is love, which is willing the good of another. His love was sacrificial, but it was a sacrifice because of his love. That's why there's no longer external sacrifices of, of animals, of everything in the Old Testament, because they pointed to what Jesus has done. and He's fulfilled as our, as our high priest and as the, as the Lamb of God, as the offer, offerer and the offering. And we're, he calls us to participate in that. It's a self-gift because it's driven by love. It's a sacrifice that's motivated by love. Jesus shows that what he's doing on the cross is what he's been doing for all eternity, pouring himself out to the Father as a gift. And Jesus sweeps all of us up, all of humanity, in this un- unbelievable gift of self to God the Father out of love, calling us to participate in this love of God that is the divine nature that is found in, self- in self-gift. self We, through Jesus, with Jesus, and in Jesus, Pour ourselves out to the Father and for our friends, our brothers and sisters, for others, saying, like Jesus, Abba, into your hands I commit my spirit. So, what does this look like for us, though? He calls us to the exact same mission. He wasn't showing purely what he could do, but he was showing what we could do and what we would do in him. It's all grace, it is all him. We say at every single Mass, when we lift Jesus up in the Eucharist, the priest sings through him, with him, and in him. And Jesus is love. He's perfect love. So we could say through love, with love, and in love. And what is love? Jesus and him crucified, a self-gift to another for the sake of their good. And we are in Jesus. We are in love itself. Jesus says that people will know that we are his disciples because of our love. And when we are in Jesus, we are no longer under the law but we are actually in the law, which is in Jesus who is perfect love. We are not under the law written on tablets, but we are in the law, in the flesh, as the law written in flesh disciples. St. Augustine says it this way, It is one thing to be within the law and another thing to be under the law. Those who are within the law act according to the law. Those who are under the law are acted upon according to the law. Therefore, those who are within the law are free. Those who are under the law are slaves. So perfect love, which is the fulfillment of the law, is to be in Jesus crucified. God poured out in love and gives us his spirit to participate in that divine nature of self-giving love. And we might not be ever called to martyrdom where we would give ourselves in martyrdom or be crucified like Jesus. But every single day is an opportunity he's calling us to give of ourselves, to pour out ourselves for other people, to love like he loves, to empty ourselves, to pour ourselves out in that love that has transformed us and to give it to the entire world, to be on the same mission of Jesus, to redeem and to restore. And like we said before, natural law speaks of all this, but the divine revelation in Jesus illuminates and heightens all of this. Just look at the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. And the sayings of Jesus throughout Matthew five, where Jesus says, "You have heard it said, but I say to you," this is actually from a uh, Protestant pastor, Bill Johnson. He's one of my favorite to ever listen to. He's incredible. He's with Bethel Church in Redding, California. Just love the love that man and uh, his love for for God and for for people. He just we just want to honor him so much. And uh, and this is from from him from a pro- Protestant background. He said that I don't know how people could look at the Bible and say, "Well, in the old." in the old testament i had to act a certain way but in the new testament i'm i'm good like i don't need to be uh to act holier to live an actful life he said i don't know how you could read the new testament and f- find that because he says this according to Matthew 5 the law says do not kill grace says don't even be angry with your brother the law says do not commit adultery grace says don't even look lustfully at a woman so jesus is hitting the law and showing what it's actually trying to always have done is that underneath the law is the intention of the heart. Don't It's a heart issue. So grace says not to divorce. Grace says let your yes mean yes and no mean no. Grace says to give your extra cloak to the one who asks for your coat, to go an extra mile with the one who forces you to go one mile, to give and not to refuse to the one who begs to borrow. Grace says to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you that's grace that's grace jesus is calling us to actually even greater not just to have an external act of of all those things being under the law but he's calling us to be in the law which is in jesus fulfilled in jesus and he calls us to be hungry and thirsty for righteousness and justice and he tells us the true meaning of the law which is uh jesus renewing us to go back to the beginning so we see jesus is adjusting a heart issue it's a heart issue and following Jesus and f- allowing him to be Lord over every little tiny detail of our entire lives purifies our hearts to allow him to restore us to the image we were created in and in which he has restored us in him to go back to the very beginning. And when I say go back to the beginning, Jesus talks about this himself. Uh, there's two things that I want to point out. One in Matthew 19, the Pharisees asked Jesus, "If it, Is it lawful to divorce? And what does Jesus quote? He quotes Genesis 2.24, and that's right before the fall where the two, and he quotes that the two shall become one flesh. And this is when they were perfectly united to each other and with God before the fall. And when they further, and when the Pharisees further press Jesus after he quotes this, they ask him, then why did Moses command a certificate of divorce? And Jesus says, "...in the beginning it was not so, but it was your hardness of heart that allowed you to divorce your wives." Jesus is restoring us. He wants us to be a new creation in the new Adam and in the new Eve, Jesus Mary, Jesus and Mary. And the second point I wanted to bring out of going back to the beginning, and we spoke about this uh, the past few episodes on, episodes on salvation, talking about what Jesus has done for us, and uh, also on an Always More Wednesday episode released on Ash Wednesday, and Jesus came to wage war on satan to defeat his works namely sin and death to undo what the shackles of the devil that he put on the human race after the beginning of creation that caused the fall of all mankind and we see this in luke 4 with jesus in the desert and he goes to destroy satan's temptations of lust of the eyes lust of the flesh and pride and envy that first destroyed the human race and jesus shows that we are called to destroy the works of the devil in him by relying not on our flesh but on the spirit and in First John, he walks through talking about why we pray, fast, and alms give and it's destroy the works of the devil. That is the temptations of lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and uh, pride and envy of, in the heart of men to undo what Satan has done. And at the end of the temptations of Jesus in, in Luke 4, and when he's tempted in the desert, it says this at the end of Luke 4, Satan departed from Jesus until an opportune time. And when was that, oppor- that opportune time? So Satan comes back. And it's when Jesus is on the cross. And when he's being tempted, it's the exact same temptations, the exact same insults that Satan was saying uh, in in, in the desert. Everyone's insulting Jesus on the cross, mocking him, and saying, if you are the son of God, take yourself down off that cross. They're attacking his identity and saying, if you truly were, you would do this. They're mocking him, insulting him. And this is the voice of Satan. Satan did this to our first parents, Adam and Eve, and he continues to do this to all of us, and he did it to Jesus, but Jesus came out victorious, and Jesus is giving us the weapons to come out victorious. Um, And through Jesus, that love poured out on the cross, in complete abandonment and humility, he definitively destroys the work of the devil, and then he gives us the power to do so in our lives. So Jesus is calling us to think and act like him, like God. Throughout the Gospels, it can be tough to be a disciple. And Jesus never sugarcoated it. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus tells us to pick up our cross daily, to die like a grain of wheat, to lose our lives for the sake of the gospel, to persevere until the end, even under persecution. But we have a good teacher in Jesus. And disciple, being a disciple of Jesus, the word disciple means learner. We're learner of Jesus. And Jesus says, when you're persecuted and we're thrown in front of people uh, and they persecute you and for the sake of my name, don't worry about what you're going to say. The Holy Spirit will speak through you. It's all grace. But we need to actively participate in that grace. And so, uh, and that is the call of discipleship. And in Luke 7, 40, uh, to to hit on this point of the us disciples, which mean learner, and our teacher is Jesus, we are called to become like our teacher, like Jesus. And in Luke seven forty, Jesus says this, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully taught will be like his teacher. And so our teacher is Jesus was at the peak and the climax at his most active teaching moment when he was on the cross. St. Augustine says this, that our teacher sat upon the cross in his the climax of his teaching. So that we can say with him, we have been crucified with him, just like Galatians 2.20 says, that it's no longer us who live, but Christ who lives in us. It's grace. It's all him. It's all his works, but we need to actively participate. We need to die to self, carry our cross, to die like a grain of wheat, to lose our lives for the sake of the gospel, to persevere until the end, even when we're persecuted. And God uh, searches the heart and the mind. Jesus says in Mark 7.21-23, What comes out of a man is what defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, fornication, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a man. So Jesus is addressing the heart. It comes from within. So he's calling us, obviously, to never sin externally but he's calling us even to a greater purity to be pure as your heavenly father is pure and jesus uh and throughout the gospels he would even address the thoughts of men they wouldn't even say anything but he would perceive he would know their thoughts and he would speak to them and address their their heart where evil originates jesus calls us to cleanse the inside of the cup saint paul echoes this in that we hold all thoughts captive to christ to put on the mind of Christ to address the root of our sin, our hearts to purify our hearts that would then purify our actions and intentions and would defeat sin in our lives and Jesus says forgive your brother in your heart and this right relationship with each other is so radical, so radical a lot of times we think of like Jesus came to reconcile us to God and that is 100% true, he did but he also came to reconcile us to each other And it's so radical that uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, 21 through 27, he's uh, addressing the issue of concerning, of, of anger. He's addressing the issue of anger. Jesus says, "...if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled with your brother, and then come and offer your gift." wow okay so he's addressing this to jewish people who would have offered gifts at the altar and there's a uh, very um prominent uh feast days where they would come and they would have to come to jerusalem to offer their gift at the altar to be sacrificed to and for to god and they would have had long lines it is a dutiful process like it is a a long process to get whatever you're sacrificing the best thing that you could and then go stand in line offer it do all these things that was a long time and jesus says if you're at the altar you just waited this whole time and then you remember your brother has something against you leave your gift before the altar and go first be reconciled with your brother and when we come to the altar and we come to offer sacrifice ourselves our living sacrifice of our bodies in union with jesus at the sacrifice of the mass how many times do we go with people on our hearts, and I'm talking to myself too? Sometimes I feel like on this up on this podcast, sometimes I can get into like uh, talking like other people are doing this. When I'm talking about this, and I feel like the Lord has placed it on my heart, it's really for, it's for me as well. So, so but like how many times like something is on our heart for other people, and God, and Jesus is saying it'd be better for you to be reconciled and then come and offer your gift because that is the radical nature of right relationship of the christian message and jesus further addresses the heart he says our intentions matter and this is where uh he shows us intentions matter in matthew 6 jesus says do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing to give in secret right but in matthew 5 Thirteen through sixteen, Jesus says, "Be salt and light to the earth. Let your light shine before all men, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven." So Matthew six says, "Don't show your good works." Matthew five, Jesus says, "Show your good works." So what's the difference? Your intention, your heart. Are you doing it for love of the person that you that you are ministering to, and are you doing it out of the love of God, that you are trying to bring people to God the Father and not to you? that you are trying to bring people back to God on that mission of Jesus, reconciling all men to himself that he called us to. So our hearts need to be captured to be illuminated by this love of Jesus and to act and to participate in this love. St. Paul in 1 Corinthians thirteen thirteen says, Faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. And in John 13, 35, Jesus tells the apostles, love one another as i have loved you this by all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another and that same uh that same author John in his first letter in chapter 4 he says we love because he first loved us we don't approach god uh begging for his love. It's not man seeking God. The Christian message is God seeking man. And it's God's love. It's always his grace that precedes everything. He's calling us to participate in it. But we love because he first loved us. And another part of that same chapter, verse John, 1 John 4, he says, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And in other parts, he says that we know that we don't have the love of God in us if we hate our brother. He's a, you're a liar. We're a liar if we say we love God but, but hate our brother. 1 John 4.20 says, He who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he, whom he has not seen. Loving each other is essential. Right relationship with each other means that we have that uh, love of God abiding in our hearts, that we will imitate Jesus, that we would let our yes mean yes and our no mean no. And Jesus calls us, what he said earlier, like picking up our cross and carrying it. All these things are hard to understand, hard to grasp, hard to do. But it's especially when it's hard is that the grace is sufficient for us and it's always there. And this, this is, the, those are the moments where it becomes transformative for us and for other people. It becomes the source of true love and freedom. Because you won't compromise truth or compassion, you will stick with the truth and stick with compassion, which is authentic love. And uh, just something really quick before I uh, go on with some scripture scripture verses, I was just like thinking, like in the Christian life, when we receive trials, and it's usually not just isolated. Like sometimes. Sometimes it is isolated where you feel alone in your trials or whatever, but a lot of times we're in trials and tribulations together, like this coronavirus or things going on in our lives. We, come, we have it together. And it just like struck me one time when I felt like I was going through some sort of cross with a loved one, and, it's, and like we became closer. And it dawned on me that every single cross met with grace is unifying. And Jesus says, I will draw all men to myself when I am lifted up. And it's that cross that, that he bears, that he has compassion, that he takes upon himself, that he shares in our suffering, that compassion and that truth, that's when we are unified with him. And that's why St. Paul and Peter and everybody in the New Testament says rejoice in your sufferings because it is such a gift. It becomes unitive and it comes redemptive and it comes transformative in the love of God. Uh, so... Uh, in those hard times, it becomes a source of true love, authentic love, and freedom, because we will not compromise on truth or compassion where authentic love is met. First Peter two, eighteen through twenty-five. First Peter chapter two, this entire section is called Example of Christ's Suffering. I'm gonna only say a few verses, but I highly recommend anybody go read it. He says this if when you do right and suffer for it, you take it patiently, you have God's approval. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no guile was found on his lips. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he trusted to him who judges just, justly. And St. Peter is telling us we're called to imitate Jesus in his suffering. Hebrews 4 to 15 says, Christ our high priest is is able to sympathize with our weaknesses and has been tempted in every respect yet without sinning. Jesus became all things for men yet without sin to save us. 1 Corinthians 9.22, St. Paul says that he became all things to all men that he might save some. And we are called to become things to all men to save some yet without sinning. And the without sinning part is so radical. Hebrews 12.4 says... In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. He's referencing, the author of Hebrews is referencing Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he was sweating blood. He had the weight of the world on him, and he was sweating blood. He was asking the Father to let this cup pass from me, Father. But his last words were this, but not my will, your will be done. And Jesus calls us in those times of of tough decision making or tough crosses to bear that we have a high priest who is in that in our weakness that we would become strong like him and we would ultimately say not as my will lord but as your will be done and we can still ask just like jesus did we can still ask please lord like deliver me from from this suffering deliver me from this we want healing we want all this but at the end your will be done and to resist to the point of shedding blood will never commit a sin because we are in Jesus and sin is contrary to the life of a Christian and it is to save us and to save others out of love. So in that revelation of Jesus that we are called to imitate Jesus and him crucified, we see that in everything our entire lives need to be conformed to that love and so it's a heart uh, it's a heart topic where we, our intentions need to be purified that everything that it begins is love, it is through love, it's in love, it's with love, and the means is love, the end is love. And that's why every single teaching of the church is so beautiful because it has to be this perfect love, this authentic love that Jesus has, truth and compassion together. And ends never justify the means and means don't justify the ends. Let me just have one example on that last part. Means don't justify the ends. Because this one can be a little sneaky and it can sneak into our hearts and um, it seems like it's a little bit more rare. But Jesus directly addresses this in Matthew tw- uh, fifteen three through 6 and Mark 7, 9-12 when he says this to the Pharisees, "...you leave the commandment of God and hold fast the traditions of men. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition." For Moses said, "Honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother, let him surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, "What would you have gained from me is Corban is korban That is given to God. when you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making the void of the word of God through your tradition, which you hand on, and many such things you do. So what's he again saying? Giving to the temple, giving to God is a good is a good thing, right? Jesus encourages it, uh, giving to God. He says, "Bringing your gift to the temple, give it to God." The first Christians would come and lay all their like their belongings, the things that they had, at the feet of the apostles, so they could help others. Those are good things to give it back to God. But what they were doing is saying, "Well, I'm giving it to God, so I can't help my parents," and they dishonor their parents. And the, one of the commandments is, "Honor your father and your mother." And this is an example of your means doesn't justify the ends because the means, they, they're they like, I'm giving to God. But then in the end, they're dishonoring their parents. So uh, they were dishonoring their parents and they were avoiding that responsibility. So uh, a means doesn't justify the ends. And now the ends doesn't justify the means. And this is where it's a little bit more pervasive, right? And what we mean by an ends doesn't justify the means is that what the no matter what the outcome is, could be even if the outcome is good but if the way that you get there is bad it's never permissible to achieve that good end because you've done evil along the way it's bad and i'm sure there are a lot of examples for faith uh one of them being like you know that you can go to the sacrament of confession so you sent anyways you're presuming your forgiveness you're presuming that you have the beautiful sacrament of confession that's bad that's bad you know um and there's a lot of faith but i want to talk a, a lot about not a lot, but just like examples where the en- the ends never justify the means, um, where the, the means is bad, but the outcome is good. I want to, that hits on morality. One great example is in vitro fertilization, IVF. People, you know, they want kids. That's beautiful. They want life. They want to love a child, you know, but the means to get there, to achieve that end is absolutely horrible a man has to go masturbate so he's not giving himself it's not unifying it's not procreative he's masturbating into a cup and then this making this child becomes a science experiment they are literally making little babies uh, in a petri dish and then they implant them and then uh, the ones that receive um, you know fertilization what they have to do if these uh, embryos become fertilized in, in the mother, because they want the doctors want a successful pregnancy to occur, right? But if multiple embryos um, are fertilized, what do they have to do? They have to do re- uh, selective reduction. They essentially have to remove these little children, and then if the ch- if nothing uh, happens. They put them in a freezer. They hold these like embryos and hold all these things, and ultimately, a lot of times they're destroyed. So this is a way that leads to even abortion. This is not procreative or unitive, even though the the end of it is a child. Praise God, but the means to get there is never right, and that is uh, one example of of morals. And um, what the evil one has done is distorted all good things to make them uh, bad. And then the world sees them as good. So these are good, beautiful. The- I have a list of good, beautiful things that are given for our enjoyment, for our good, but evil distorts it. Money, possessions, entertainment, work, sex. Those are all beautiful things that God has given us to for us to enjoy. But then we become attached to them. We use them in the wrong way. We use them and they hurt people. We use them for greed. We use them... For our own uh, pleasures, that that have bad intentions, that end up in bad things, uh, we make work our god. What's our first question in America? What do you do for a living? We all believe that we're self-made. These are bad. These are good and beautiful things that end up being evil because the evil one has distorted them, and we have latched onto those lies. And then I have a list too of these are all good, but too little is bad, obviously. And then too much of it is harmful, and th- this list is both physically and spiritually that we become attached to. Sleep, too little of it, bad physically. Too much of it becomes slothful and lazy. Food, too little of it, bad physically. Too much of it becomes, uh, becomes indulging, becomes, uh, not being able to give of yourself, becomes lazy, like it's, uh, and it can even become toxic. Drinks is the same way. Working little of it bad um too much of it bad because it can become everything that it that it is for us like can become our god we start idolizing our work become the work of our hands and it becomes uh, um, idolatry but working is a beautiful thing god told us to till the soil even before the fall work was there work is a beautiful thing when I was working outside the other day, I just felt like when I just invited Jesus to work with me, I just couldn't imagine like him and Joseph working outside, and Jesus just thinking like, "This is my father's uh, world. Like how beautiful it is. I love working, but coming attached to it is bad. working, uh, if it's too little of it, becomes bad as well, it becomes lazy and um, prideful. So uh, the ends never justify the means. And this is why we have the um, na- natural law speaks about it. Science speaks about it. Everything around us speaks of this. But in Jesus, it becomes illuminated and heightened and recalled to even a greater love. And this is what illuminates every single church teaching on morality, is Jesus and him crucified, perfect love of truth and compassion. And this is why Jesus is the Savior who's, even when we have a cross, we have the Savior that bears that burden with us and walks with us, that suffers with us, that has truth and compassion. And we need to stick with that truth and compassion to have true, authentic love and to follow him to the cross, even when it becomes difficult to, to walk with Jesus in that. So all of that may sound hard, but this is the price of discipleship and Jesus did not sugarcoat it, as we said before. But here's, And here's the good news. We never do it by ourselves. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing, but in Christ, we can do all things through him who strengthens us. It's the Holy Spirit that will speak through us. He will be at work in us to do the works of God that he prepared beforehand because we are co-laborers with Christ. God's workmanship created for good works, Ephesians 2.20 says. This is what we were created to do. It's through intimacy with Jesus that this happens. Apart from him, nothing. With Christ, I can do all things. It's Jesus working in us. And he calls us to participate directly. We have to actively engage into that grace that he's calling us to. And so what did Jesus do? What did he come to do? What did he give as our mission? What is fulfilled in him? And it's to be in perfect love in Jesus, with Jesus, through Jesus, in Jesus, and to fulfill all righteousness and justice, to have perfect love. Ultimately, the Christian message is right order, right relationships.